Father, we bow before you this morning and we just give thanks for your mercy. We're thankful for your love for us and how you care for us so consistently. And um, we look to you this morning. We pray that uh, even as we come in today, I don't know where the students have been or what's been on their hearts, but I know that Sundays are always busy for me and um, now we're approaching your word. And we pray that you would Settle us, that you would open our hearts and our, our minds to understand what you've revealed to us, especially about how we change. And Father, I pray that your spirit would just be pleased to give us insight. And um, if anybody is enslaved, any patterns of sin, that uh, you would just be gracious and do your work what you intend to do as your word's taught and as we love on each other today. And uh, we ask it all in Christ's name and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as you know, we are in a series on growth. Uh, Growing up, we're looking to, um, growing up to maturity, that's kind of been the theme, how God matures us into the image of His Son. And we started this series by looking at just this theme of maturity all around, that, okay, God's goal for every single one of us is that over time we begin to resemble His Son. We begin to look more and more like Jesus, and, uh, and we, we, took a, we took a hard look at that on the first week. Let's give us a, a review. We were looking at understanding maturity. So how would you define it? Again, quick review. How would you define what it means to be mature? Okay, the pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting like Christ. Who wants to act it out? Just kidding. You don't, you don't have to do that. <laughs> But yes, it's good. Visual is probably helpful. Um, the pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting like Christ. Is it perfection? No. It's the pattern of, of doing that. It's the consistency in, in doing that. So, God saved us. He's given us a new capacity through His Spirit um, to actually make progress in life. And so, how does He do that? What are some of the things He uses? What are some of the means that He uses to mature us? There were four. Number one, the Spirit. Yeah, how does the Spirit mature us? Through the truth. Yep. Oh, I don't have those up. Spirit, God's given us His Spirit and salvation. The Spirit illumines the truth to us. And then what happens? Where does that, where, where does that happen, I should say? In the church. Yep. And what's the fourth thing He uses? The world. How? Trials, lots of things, but trials predominantly. Trials come in and cement those convictions that we're learning, that we've received in the church through the truth that His Spirit is revealing to us. Yeah, so that was in 30 seconds what we covered in four weeks. So, uh, if you're new and you're like, what are we talking about right now? I am very disoriented. Um, Go back and listen to those. They're all online. All right, so a few weeks back we pivoted and started this process of maturity. So if that's what God's using, those are His means to grow us, and they're all working together, then what is the process? And specifically, what's my role in that process? So God's doing, He's growing me, but what is my role? So a few weeks back, we talked about um, our response, or our first, the first step in this process is that we have to learn to respond rightly to our sin. So if we're in progress... That means that we're coming out of patterns of sin and into patterns of of righteousness. So that means there will be sin in our lives. And the Bible knows that. 
The Bible's realistic about that and helps us understand how do we approach our sin? How do we respond rightly to it? And who remembers some of the things that we talked about that week? How do you respond rightly to your sin? What do you not do? You don't minimize. I heard that. You don't despair. Yep. You don't isolate. Okay, so what do you do? Confess. Yeah, you confess. You own it. You don't make excuses. You, see, you, own, you own your sin. Christ wants us to do that, to honestly come before him in honest confession, and that's just saying, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Again, I've, I've, I've sinned, um, and God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then in that, what are we doing? Who are we looking to? To Christ, right? We're looking to his atonement, not ours. We don't want to self-atone. We don't want to beat ourselves up and try to, you know, try to make God happy with us in some way because God's happy with us in Christ. So he asks us to be honest, to confess that, to look to him and not to self-atone. That's not all he asks us to do in responding to our sin, but that's the first step, okay? And that's crucial. So if you missed that one, definitely go back, listen to that message. All right, that was first step, was responding rightly to our sin. We don't want to sort of keep responding wrongly and keep that pattern of deception going. But then next, we learned that it's our responsibility to fight by faith. To fight by faith. And so what we've been talking about is, you know, it takes faith to believe in Christ and His atoning work for us. And that same faith that, that believes in Christ is the faith that fights it's faith that fights to continue to believe God in, in growth. So if you want to boil it all down, sanctification or the growth process is just the process of learning to trust Jesus and to trust him above yourself, to above what you think, above what you feel, um, above what you perceive to be right. You're entrusting yourself to Jesus, to his promises, his warnings, his commands, and you're orienting your life around what he says over time. That is the growth process. And I just call it fighting by faith because the, the fighting idea is, it means it's, 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 we're gonna have, it's gonna be scrappy, right? So we're gonna have to work hard at this to, to believe Jesus. It's not just gonna come naturally to us because we're saved. And really, there's three essential practices of this fighting by faith. And we began this last week, so this is part two. There's three essential practices of fighting by faith, and this over in Ephesians chapter four. So if you wanna go ahead and turn there. Since this is part two, we're going to start this morning with a little bit more extended review of what we, were, what we covered last week. These are three essential practices, the things that we need to get very familiar with if we're going to battle by faith, if we're going to fight by faith. And Paul outlines these for us in Ephesians 4. And you can find these principles throughout the New Testament, but it's, this is a good sort of clear packaging of, of these, these practices. We'll look at them again. He says, beginning in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, meaning staying in your old life. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here they are. Number one, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And number three, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Now, we talked about the first two last week, to put off your old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so today we're going to talk about what we find in verse 24, this put on the new self. But before we get there, let's just get a running start back into this passage, kind of jog your memory a little bit, because we're going to, it's step three actually builds on the first two steps. All right, so what was step number one of this, these three practices? We called it trashing the old self. This is about to put off, says Paul, and to throw in the trash this thing he describes as the old self. And then he goes on to describe it even further, and he says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through these deceitful desires. So what does this mean? What are we getting at when Paul says to, to put off or to trash the old self? And I'd summarize it like this. We have to learn to habitually discard the old ways of thinking that lead to the old ways of living. We have to learn to habitually discard old ways of thinking that lead to old ways of living. We covered that in depth last time. This trashing the old self is this, is this putting off of the entirety of our thought processes, our desires, our, our, our actions that are all bound up in what Paul says is this old man. In other words, if how you think and live and act are not rooted in the truth, this old man is operative, or old woman is operative in your life. He's constantly deceiving us. He's constantly after us and, and, and trying to, to lead us astray. And so we have this dark passenger, even though we're in Christ, we have this dark passenger that's kind of riding along with us, and we have to habitually put him off. So how do we do that? We looked at a lot of practical ways to do that. We saw that we do it first by refusing to identify with the old self. Refusing to identify with the old self. And that's what Paul says here. Even though it's tempting to think, the, to think that the, the old self is part of who we are, it's the real me, we can't think of it that way. The old self, says Paul, belongs to your former manner of life, he says. That means that your anxious desires, your sinful desires, your patterns of anger, even things like homosexual desires, those are not you if you're a Christian. That's the old you. Christ is now your fundamental identity. You're not a sinner struggling to become a saint you're a saint who is struggling with sin. You get that? You're not a sinner. You can't think of yourself fundamentally as a sinner trying to become a saint. That's not true. You're a saint in Christ who is now struggling with sin. So we put off the old self by refusing to identify with that old self. But that's not all. We trash the old self by recognizing the sinfulness of the old self. This is all what we covered last week, so it's just review. It's the third coat of paint, all right? We have to recognize that the, the old self is corrupt. And that's because we're all tempted to minimize how bad we really are outside of Christ. We're all tempted to think that our sinful cravings are not that serious. They're not going to hurt us that bad. We're tempted to think we can control them, that we have a handle on them. 
But if we're going to put off our sin, we've got to see it, as Paul says here, as completely corrupt. That's what he says about the old self. It's, not, it can't, it's, not, it's irredeemable. You can't improve your old self. There's only one thing to do. You just throw it away. Your lusts aren't a mild misdemeanor. They are corrupting. They're corrupting to you. They're corrupting to those around you. They're corrupting to the church. And so seeing the old self as a corruption will help you take the necessary steps to trash it day in and day out, to habitually discard it instead of kind of cozying up to it and coddling with it, you know. It's corruption. We don't want to, we don't want to keep that around. And next, to put off the old self, we've got to refuse to trust its desires. Now, I've got this in yellow, and you're thinking, why is it in yellow? Because it wasn't in the outline last week, Okay. It doesn't mean we didn't talk about this last week. We did, but I thought, this is such an important point. I'm going to just work it back in. Revisionist history. And act like we talked about this. We've got to refuse to trust our desires. Even though we feel things deeply, we cannot trust our own assessments. Why is that? Because Paul says that our desires are fundamentally deceived. The desires of the old self is literally of deceit. Meaning our deceived thoughts are churning up these deceived desires. So why else would we crave things that lead to death? Because we're deceived. We think they're good when they're actually evil. So that means our old self, no matter how strongly you feel these these things from your old self, if those desires are not rooted in truth, then you cannot trust that they are reliable. In fact, they're not reliable. You've got to be very skeptical of your own heart because the old self's often lurking around in there trying to deceive. Okay, And he's turning up these desires within us. So we have to, if we're going to trash the old self, we've got to refuse to trust its desires. And then finally, we've got to capture its thoughts. Kind of have to pin them to the wall and force a confession, you know, out of the old self. This old self is constantly thinking. He's constantly assessing. He's constantly making judgments about things. And we have to expose it. So I keep saying he as though he's like not part of you. It's, it's you, right? It's the old you. So you have to expose what it is you're saying to yourself. In moments of temptation, I encourage people to write down everything they're saying to themselves so that we can smoke out those deceived thoughts of the old self. That's because if we're tempted to sin, if we're tempted to do the wrong thing, we're being actively lied to by our old self. And if we're going to experience lasting change, we have to see those lies for what they are. But how can we discern the lies if we're deceived by them? Right? A little bit of a problem there. Deceived. I don't know it. That's that's the essence of being deceived, right? Well, we have no hope unless we have the Spirit of God and unless we have His Word. So praise the Lord, we have both of those things. And that leads us to our next essential practice of fighting sin, 
we talked about last week, we have to renew our minds. So Paul says, or allow God to renew our minds. It's really the verb is passive in the text, but renew our minds. So what is that? You can say it like this. It's learning to think God's way. It's learning to align our thoughts with his word. So if you want a mental picture, just kind of picture our minds like an old dilapidated house. It's falling apart, and it needs renovation. And the Spirit, working through His Word, does that renovating work. It means we've got to know and believe what God says above what we think and feel. God's Word must be understood and embraced as true above everything else. And that's mind renewal. It's got to, it's, and oftentimes, God's word runs against what we perceive, runs against our senses, runs against the way that we think things are. And when it does, we have to embrace God's word and not what we think or feel. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, renewing our minds obviously starts with exposing the lies of the old self. We have to get in there and discern what those lies are and expose them with truth. Okay, once you've written out what you've been saying to yourself in those moments of temptation, then go before the Lord and ask, is this true? Father, please help me see the thoughts and intentions of my heart according to your word. And then try to evaluate those thoughts with Scripture. And like I said last time, this is often where we need help from other people. Our thoughts seem true to us, but when someone else helps us scrutinize them according to Scripture... God enables us to see those lies. And the more you do this, the more you try to discern your thoughts, the more discerning your own, of your own heart you'll become, the more discerning in the Word of God you'll become and its application to your heart. So then once you've, you've kind of done that, you've smoked out some of those lies, you've isolated those lies, and now you have some truth to, to combat those lies with, you've got to review those truths every day. So that you commit them to memory. It's not enough just to have those truths written down somewhere. Because they're written down, that's great, but they're not in you. Which is where the battle is. They have to be in your mind and they have to be in your heart. You need some way to review those truths each day. So how, whatever your system is for that. I recommend people to review them at the beginning and end of the day at a minimum, if you're in a besetting sin pattern. You want to get to the point where they're second nature. You can spit these things out from memory because you're so used to battling your heart. And so commit these things to review. And then third, we renew our minds by considering what your life could become if you really did believe this truth. What do I mean by that? You're actively thinking about what fruit the Lord could do, what the Lord could produce, what He intends to produce in your life, if you just believed His Word. So kind of chart out that for yourself, because that's going to help incentivize you to be obedient. If you could just 
trust the Lord, really is in control of this hard situation in your life, what would it look like? Well, if he's in control, then you, you'd be able to make hard decisions in faith. You wouldn't languish around in indecision. And that indecision only hurts you. You'd be able to have consistent joy. It's just think, things like that. You just write those out. What, what would happen in my life if I really did believe the Scripture? All right. Well, that's where we've been. Okay? And there was a lot more to that with a lot more examples in the last week. So if you want those, definitely go back and listen. So in the time we have left, we're going to talk about this third step, which is, whoa, left you hanging. It's not in there. All right. It was this. It'll come up on the next screen. Okay. Get dressed in the new self. It's number three. Get dressed in the new self. So what Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 24, get dressed in the new self. He says, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, before we get into the, the practice here, let me just say a few words about this new self. Because just like he talks about the old self in verse 22, he talks about the new self. He kind of elaborates that because he wants us to understand some things about it. So let's, let's talk about this new self. What are some things we see here about this new self that we're to put on? He says it's the new humanity. What he's talking about is nothing short of the new humanity. He says it's the new self, the new, the new, um, the new man, literally, created after the likeness of God. The point here is we're not going to unpack all of this, but I I could show you this. Back in chapter 2, he's already talked about this new man. And it's this this new humanity that's that's made up of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. And what he's calling us to here is that, that putting on this new self means we're learning how to be truly human. It's not that we're simply learning how to avoid, to sin, avoid sinning. That's very important. We're definitely doing that, trying not to sin. What we're trying to be is a true human. Sin is anti-human, and to obey God in Christ is the true essence of being a human. It's how we were originally intended to flourish on earth in the beginning, It's a true and noble life. It's something worth living and dying for. And, get this, it's what's going to last on into the new creation. This humanity that fell in Adam, God is restoring now in and through Christ. And what's happening in us, this fruit that's being produced in our lives, is going to transcend into the new creation. It's eternal. So that's what's at stake. This new humanity And I want you to notice something else. It's already been created by God. It's already been created by God. Again, he says this in depth over in chapter 2. This is really shorthand now in chapter 4. But this means, when when he's talking about the new self is created, 
This means that we must realize it's already ours in and through Christ. We're not creating it by our obedience. God has already created it. It's come from Him, just like the first creation came from Him. We didn't do anything to generate that creation. And we didn't do anything to generate this new creation either. It's already ours in and through the gift of Christ, through the cross. Chapter 2 talks about that. It's through His cross work that we're given this new, this new humanity. And now this is our fundamental identity, not that old man. We are new humans. And part of the new creation because of what Christ has accomplished for us, no matter what you feel. When we believed in Him, this new identity was granted to us. We did not earn it. We're not creating it ourselves as we obey. As we obey, we are merely reflecting what is already ours in Christ. In fact, he talks about, this, this is interesting, okay? Back in chapter 2. We worked through the whole letter of Ephesians two years ago. It is sweet, okay? Look in verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you think, great. Now listen to this phrase. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's talking about good works. That God has already prepared those good works that you're going to walk in tomorrow. That's the idea. We're learning to realize what's already been given to us in the new, the new self. That changes the way we think about obedience. It's an actualizing of what's already ours, what's already has, have been given to us by Christ. Okay, We've got to keep moving here. And finally, notice that it reflects God's own character. This new creation is in mint condition. Paul says this new human is created after God's likeness in righteousness and holiness. ESV translates it as that true righteousness and holiness, but it's probably righteousness and holiness that's springing up out of the truth. But the point is that it reflects God's character. All that was intended for Adam to be and do, Christ fulfilled. So our new self, the new Adam, is fully righteous and holy. And that is our identity now. So, that's what this new man, this new self is. So what does he mean when he tells us to put it on? How do we put on something that we already have? Kind of confusing. And that's where the nuance comes in. Even though it's ours already, Paul tells us we've got to put it on. It's our responsibility. It means, get this, we've got to learn to practice what is already ours in possession. We have to learn to practice what's already ours in possession. So to keep with the clothing analogy, like Paul does here, it's as though Christ has purchased and given to us the most beautiful and expensive clothing, something we could never afford, his own royal clothing. But now we've got to actually put them on. To appropriate 
his life into ours. To learn to manifest in our lives what we've already been created to be. So, how do we do that? Well, Paul would go on in Ephesians to spell out what this looks like in real time with lots and lots of examples. Okay, he talks about speaking truthfully, talks about using our words to build up, about working hard instead of freeloading, about sexual purity, about stewarding your time in fruitful ways. He just keeps going. talks about how new identity should impact the home, the workplace. Paul is very comprehensive to show us the implications of being new humans. And several years back, we preached through this, like I said, and those messages are online if you want to go look at those. But for our purposes, we've been talking about growing out of a particularly besetting sin pattern. So let me just take an example and work through some practical steps of what you'll need to do to put on this new self in an area that's a struggle for you, this area that's hard. All right, so we will need to prepare, put on the new self by preparing for the next temptation. We've got to prepare for, for what's coming. Well, what we know is coming because this is a besetting area. This is something we all struggle with, right? So once you've done everything that we talked about last time and that we just reviewed, once you've discerned those lies, you've got the truth in hand, then you're going to want to prepare for the next time that you're tempted. So if you know that lust, for example, is a struggle before you go to bed, then that's the time to prepare for it, okay? Or that's the time to prepare for, right? That evening moment. So have your truths on hand, ready to review. I'll just assume you're going to remember them, okay? Have your truths ready in that moment. You know, it's have to be rehearsing them. All right, Paul tells me in Ephesians 5 not to participate in the works of darkness because I'm no longer in darkness anymore. I'm light in the Lord, he says. That's my identity. And this is my chance to put that to death, to live fruitfully in this moment. So you're reviewing those truths. And also you want to make sure that you've got a plan for what obedience is going to look like in that moment. I'll just freewheel it. All right, what is obedience to Christ look like in the moment. Plan that out in your mind. You might say, okay, if I really believe this truth, if I really believe that I'm no longer in darkness, but I'm light in Christ, and that Christ is commanding me not to indulge in this lust, what would I do? What should I do instead? Obviously, I shouldn't entertain these lustful thoughts or look at lustful things online. So obedience would look like not taking any of those tempting portals with me to bed. Right? Your phone, your computer, whatever else is there, shouldn't, shouldn't be with you. But it will also look like doing something fruitful. What could I do instead in that moment? What could I do that would build Christ's kingdom instead of Satan's kingdom? Because that's what our lusts do, by the way. We're, we're propping up Satan's demonic kingdom. Well, sleep would be an obvious choice of, of good obedience in that moment. So it'll prepare you for the next day. But we know how this goes, right? You, you thought, what if I can't turn my mind off? What if my mind's lingering? Then you might think I could journal prayers for others in my life and, and learn to intercede better for them. In that moment, just keep a little prayer journal right beside your bed. I could practice praying by writing out my prayers 
then I could track how God answers those prayers. Prayers for my church, prayers for my friends. Get specific. Spend that time that you would use for Satan and his kingdom to gratify your sinful desires for Christ. That would build Christ's kingdom. Now, that's just an illustration of something that's super small and may seem like, really? But it's a plan nonetheless, right? You've got a strategy now that you didn't have before because you were freewheeling it. It's helpful to know what you're going to do in the moment when your desires are raging and you're not trying to think of something on the spot because your judgment is already impaired in that moment when you're facing those temptations. So that's an example of making a plan or, or preparing for the next temptation, but what do you do when the temptation comes? Okay, In the moment of this temptation, now you've got a plan, you have to recall the truth in that moment of temptation. And you can write down Luke chapter 4. Because Christ models this beautifully for us in his own temptation. When the sinful cravings hit, it's like we, we drive into a dense fog, spiritually speaking. The fog descends, you know? It's just like, where are we? Can't see anything. We can't see what's around us, even though what's around us is still there. We need a strong wind to come and dispel the fog so that we can see clearly. And that wind is the Word of God. It's what Jesus did in the temptation to the wilderness. Every time Satan came to him with a lie, he battled it with texts of Scripture. Direct quotes. It is written. Quote. It is written. Quote. It is said. Quote. And think about that. If the Son of God needed to battle with Scripture, how much more do we with texts knowing where these, where these truths are found and how they're applied? All right, so Christ models that in Luke 4. Now, one of the last things that your heart, your old self's going to want to do is rehearse the truth to combat the lies. So just know that. This is the last thing your heart's going to want to do. But that's what's got to happen. If you're anxious, your heart's going to want to run down the anxious thought path rather than to try to find that truth path. Or if you're angry, the last thing that your angry heart, that self-justifying heart that just wants to blame everybody else for your problems, right? The last thing you're, that kind of heart's going to want to do is to be exposed by the truth. But that's where we've got to go. We've got to go back to truth. So in that moment, review those truths that you've been internalizing. Rehearse them back in your mind if you can. And if you can't, go back to wherever you have those truths written down, find them, and if you don't know where they are, call your friend and say, I'm about to do this stupid thing. Help me. Tell me not to do this, right? Like, speak truth into my life. Help me dispel the fog. I don't, I don't, everything in me wants to do this. They will tell you what is true, and that will help you disperse the fog. So, Check out what time we got here. All right. Kind of get that point, right? Do you want an illustration or no? <laughs> All right, we'll illustrate. All right, we'll take our example from earlier. That person who's headed to bed, and they're feeling that strong urge to look at pornography. Now they're in the moment, and they want a little pleasure before bed. It won't hurt anyone, they think. They've got to go back to the truth. 
They've got to say, no, Christ, you say this stuff ends in death. It won't ultimately be pleasurable because my conscience is going to be guilty. I'm going to have to face the shame of dishonoring the Lord. And I'm in the Lord. I'm light in the Lord. And Paul tells me that I must, there must not even be a hint of this in the church. Ephesians 5. If I give in, I will be defiling Timberlake too. Because I'm a member there. I'm supporting Satan in this satanic porn industry rather than Christ if I give in. That's what it sounds like. What's happening? You're battling the lie that just popped up. How about that little pleasure? Kind of slips in there. Yeah, that's nice, you know? I mean, that has to be defense. Truth has has to combat that. That is untrue. It is satanic. It's coming from the old self. Now, sometimes reviewing the truth radically alters our desires. Okay? So you like think about that. And you're like, whoa, what am I doing? You know, I, I, I don't want to go back there. And you flee. And praise God for that. But other times, reviewing the truth may only inflame the old self even more towards sin. Especially if you're on the younger end of this process and you're thinking, I'm just going to get the truth. I get the truth in my mind. And the truth's in your mind. And then, boom, the old self revolts because you just punched him right in the face. And he doesn't like that. And you've not built very much spiritual muscle. You're on the front end. You're starving the cravings of the old self. And that sometimes makes it crave it all the more. And if you do not realize this, you will be tempted to think that the truth is somehow not working. Do not believe that. That is a lie. You will think something like, man, I've done all this work to expose the lies and to get the truth in my mind, and yet here I am again. I'm going to bed with this intense craving to lust is not working. And that leads to doubt. Am I truly a Christian? Do I even have this spirit? Why do I still crave evil like this? So what do you do if you still feel that urge to be anxious, to be angry, to lust? You yield your will to Christ in the moment of temptation. The joy of being a Christian is it does not matter what you feel. Do you hear me? It does not matter what you feel. It matters what you believe. Because if what what you feel is deceived, and again, you punch the old self, he's going to revolt. So you have to kill him. And you kill him by obeying. And there's no other way.
And when something's getting killed, does that feel good? No. It feels like death to self, which is actually what Jesus talks about in the road to discipleship. This is the life of faith, not feelings. We cannot live by our feelings and our desires. We must live by faith. I'm not saying they're not important. They're very important. The goal is that they get in line with the Word of God. But when they're not, you've got to chokeslam those feelings with the truth and align your heart with it. All right? Think about Jesus' own example in Luke 22. You can write down Luke 22, 42. Jesus models this for us in the garden. And he's the son of God. There's a lot of mystery in this text. Because he submits his will to the father's will. In a way, we could say, Jesus doesn't want to do this at some level. Now again, there's mystery there because we know that for the joy set before him, he did, he endured these things. He wanted to do that in that sense. But in this sense, in Luke 22, he gives us one, a mysterious text. As I've worked through this one, preached through this, this is profound. Verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Jesus knows this, this is why he came. He came to drink this cup. And he's asking in honesty and his humanity, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' example shows us that obedience is often costly and it is often difficult. In a very mysterious sense, it ran contrary to the will of the second person of the Trinity. He didn't sin, but he also, in his humanity, did not want to face the full fury of the Father's wrath for us. That's the cup. And yet, he submitted his will to God's will, to his Father's will. Now, if the Son of God had to yield his will, how much more will we? And what we're talking about yielding is not a pristine, pure will of the Son that's never known sin. What we're talking about yielding is a sinful self-will, our cravings to sin. But there's joy here too. The joy is this. We are not bound by our emotions or our desires as a Christian. We were once completely enslaved to our desires and our emotions. And we we couldn't do anything other than obey them at some level. But now, through the power of the Spirit, we have the capacity to yield to God. We can think and then act by faith contrary to what we feel. Now, an example of this is what it sounds like. Father, I know my sinful cravings right now. And you know them too. I confess that I really do want to lust, but I'm going to yield my will to yours. It's not my sinful self-will, but your will be done. 
I am choosing, choosing to believe that your warnings are true and I am not going to act out in looking at what I should not look at. I'm choosing to believe. It's a volitional choice. Choosing to believe that your warnings are true. And because of that, I'm not going to act out, even though everything inside of me wants to do it. Now you think, Clay, my goodness, it's intense. Yeah, it's intense. It's intense because this is the only path of maturity. It's the only path to spiritual strength, the only path to stability. We have to practice saying yes to Christ and no to sin to get to maturity. It is the constant practice that yields maturity. Hebrews 5.14, he says this, I'll just read it to you, but solid food is for the mature. How do you get there? Who are the mature? Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's saying, he's in the context, he's teaching them about Melchizedek and some of the ways that Christ has fulfilled that line. And he kind of pulls up and he says, you're not ready for this yet because solid food is for the mature. These deeper doctrine is for people who are mature. And these people who are mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Meaning, they've done this mind renewal process and they've practiced actually saying yes to Christ and no to sin. And that's been the constant practice of their lives, day in and day out. Doesn't mean they're perfect. They've just worked at this over time. That's increased their discernment, and it's made them ready for deeper doctrine. That's why I'm kind of hesitant to talk about deeper stuff with the guy, like eschatology or those things. Who's looking at porn? Because he's actively not practicing day in and day out some of these most basic things. So how's, his, how's he going to be able to receive something that takes a lot more depth and nuance if he can't practice this? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's this day in and day out practice of these things that we've just described. That's the step-by-step path towards spiritual maturity. The renewal of your mind and the deliberate choice to act by faith and not feelings. That is what the author of Hebrews says propels you to more discernment and to more obedience. Now, this is, I just slapped the pulpit and I'm interesting. It's kind of all I can think about. It was not a good move. I'm not a pulpit slapper. And my hands are like, yeah, you're not. So... I'm very obviously very animated about this because what Satan likes to do is he likes to convince us that obedience needs to be easy and that our desires need to be in line and in order to obey. 
and that if we're obeying and our desires aren't in line or our desires are fighting us tooth and nail and we're obeying anyway, that it's hypocrisy. It's kind of the line that comes in. And that can be further from the truth if you're connecting it to faith in the truth, right? So if you're saying, faith, okay, I'm believing this, I'm going to obey. Because what he's attempting to do, he's crafty, what he's attempting to do is to get you to completely avert the actual path to get you to, to get your maturity. Like, according to Hebrews, like, this is the only path for you learning to act contrary to what you feel. But if Satan's sitting there telling you, you have to act in the way that you feel, or you're going to be hypocritical, or you're not going to be genuine or authentic, or nah, 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 then you're not going to be mature. And that's why I have a bunch of malnourished Christians in the Western church, because we do not understand this process that Christ himself walked. All right? This constant practice, day in and day out, is what we have to do. So I think I've said this before, but think of this image. We'll land here. Think of this image. The the lies you believe from the old self are like a well-worn path through those woods. You've walked that path for a long time. It feels comfortable for you, but it's a path that leads to death. And now you are charting out a new path through the woods. You're charting out a new path. You're hacking out briars. You're hacking out underbrush. You're learning, it, you're learning this, how to walk this new path. And so it's much harder to walk down, at least initially. This new path leads to life, though. And the Spirit is out in front of you. He's showing you where to go. He's, he's going to retrieve you when you get off the path to get you back on. And my point here is that the more you use the machete, the stronger you're going to get. The more you walk the new path, the more familiar it will become, the less briars will be there, and the more overgrown the old path will become. But it takes time. It takes effort on our part. It takes work. It takes, as Hebrews says, constant practice. And there's no other way. But there's a joy here because every single act of obedience, okay, Every act of obedience is progress. Think of the weight room. You're working out every day, you're working out every day, and then, whoop, a day you don't, and you go eat a McDonald's milkshake. Did you lose all that progress? No, you didn't. You've built spiritual muscle by your acts of obedience, by faith. And so if you fall in sin, if you get deceived, if you're overwhelmed, and if Satan gets you again, which he probably will, I mean, hope, hope, again, like John, I write these things, you may not sin, but if you do, you know, um, that's the feeling, right? So if you fall, your obedience isn't wasted. You didn't go back to ground zero, and now you've got to build that back up again of this, you know, this, this long runway. Just get back on the path, keep obeying, keep building that spiritual muscle. You didn't lose progress. And every little act of obedience by faith that's an evidence that the Spirit's working. The Spirit's working in your life. He's helping you obey in the small moments. And if you fail, go back to where we started. Humble confession. Humble confession. Get right back on the path. Don't languish off the path. Get on it. Get back on the path. And get back in this process. And what happens if you obey? Let that be humble joy. Because Christ is at work in you through His Spirit's power. All right, remember, this sounds complicated. It's really not. It's really just about learning to trust Jesus above what you think and feel and want, right? That's, that's, the, that's the essence. So we're going to wrap up here.